Hi, I'm Bryn Thompson. This is the Coburn Ventures podcast. It's for our clients, for investors, for our community of industry leaders, fellows, and friends. This is a group that loves the craft of investing, studies change, is dedicated to business analysis and leadership, and all that's behind the scenes of that work. I hope you enjoy it. What do we do when valuations of stocks and markets become so high as to defy our most careful assessment of the value of the business and its future cash flows? Today, we're going to present some options for layering in a process or method to use during these times. Our purpose here is to provide a few ways to help you think about how you might address the question directly. Valuation is one of the most potent triggers to take our conversations into the world of the abstract, to launch us directly into our own investment biases, to get into conversations that just swirl around and don't go anywhere, or simply to amp up the fear and confusion. And all of these things get in the way of making great decisions. So we break down some categories to help your ground a discussion in less abstract black and white factors, and we aim to help you stick with the concrete rather than getting pulled in by the abstract. After listening to this, you may come up with categories that are different, and that's great. The point is to have a process that introduces some frameworks that will keep you on shore rather than being swept away into the swirl. So let's dive in. If nothing will get investors shaking their head side to side more and more than um, talking about high valuations. It's just sometimes a throw up your hands. What can we make sense of this? It does not apply to anything we learned in you know, our traditional schooling about investing or the CFA curriculum. Mm. High valuations are obviously right? Something we should be wary of. Can you break this down a little bit and talk about your approach to handling high valuations of stocks? Sure. Let's break it down into two parts. One, the stocks, and then maybe we'll go on to the market as you kind of teed us up. So on the stock side, um, a piece we did a few months ago called growth and valuation or growth and value investing. Growth is viewed as reckless, and value investing is viewed as considered and thoughtful and all those things. And by um, the books. <laughs> and yes, value investing sits on three pillars of jello in the inside of the DCF. So we can really get high and mighty and too tied to this idea of valuation. Ultimately, this is a voting machine. And we have to, we have to respect the voting machine of, of the market. So for ourselves, since we're change investors, we're always looking first and foremost for the change, 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 change. And then when we have to apply that into the market, sometimes we're left with a bunch of just ridiculously valued stocks that even if you stretch DCFs, you know, really widely, there's just no way they make sense. Even if the sell side you know, comes in with a new price target and, you know, backs in this or the discount rate or whatever, we sort of know it's a bunch of malarkey. Well, that, that kind of continues, or at least in, in my time of investing, that has been the way of the world at different, uh, you know, all along the way. The most interesting companies often are at these ridiculous valuations that can't be justified. So in our portfolio, Bryn, as you know, we'd almost create a sub-competition 
of these ridiculously valued stocks or what we would call other room stocks, which a phrase we started using in 2013, I think it was. Tell the story of how that came about, the other room. What does that mean? Yeah, we were at we were in one of our idea days back in I think it was uh, it was like August or July 2013 or 14. I can't remember precisely. I was in a small group, and and people were worried about this valuation question again and again. And I just said, kind of, it, it's like there's a whole bunch of stocks that trade in this other room, and it was a reference to the stock exchange, which has different rooms in it. I grew up as a trader, has these different rooms in it. And I said, it's like in another room with like another, like, like you, you literally walk over a threshold to get into this other room where things seem bonkers. And and if it's in that other room, it trades under completely different forms of gravity and rules and all that. And I sort of just said, 30% of our portfolio, if we're change investors is probably going to be in that other room. Right. Let's create a sub-competition for these ridiculous, instead of pretending to do a DCF that backs into blah, 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 or talk about buying into the discussion of like, what's priced in? Uh, it's a voting machine. It's a voting machine. So to me, the question is, when will the voting change? When will the voting persist? And can we come up with a framework? And many of you have seen the pieces that we've done, but not all of you, certainly, on these high valuation ridiculous valuation stocks and how we approach those. You still need an approach for these. I don't think it's okay to just say I'm not participating if that is part of your mandate. At the same time, you don't want to just go around pretending like, oh, somehow, you know, blah, blah, blah. No, the reality is mathematically, these don't make sense. And that's okay, because this is a voting machine, not a weighing machine. So talk about that approach. You have seven factors. Sure. These have come up over time. Yeah, mainly we have seven factors because it sounds very impressive to have seven factors. It seems very organized. Seven's a great number. I know. At the bare minimum, we got that going for us. So I'll go down through a few of these. Um, the, the first we call jamais vu. And jamais vu in, in, in French, and I don't know French. And Brynn, I don't frankly think you know much French either. Um, but with that said. I know enough to tell you what jamais vu means. Okay, well. What does jamais vu mean then? Jamais vu is you've never seen it before. Oh my god! So it's almost like the the converse or opposite of déjà vu. You know, I've seen this. I've seen this before. I've been here before. Jamais vu is never. Jamais means never. And Anyone can correct me if they want, but that's okay. my memory of French. Well, at least that syncs up with the way I was taught it. But uh, it's not like I was taught it in grade school. I was taught it a few years ago. <laughs> so we got the jamais vu. If a company is truly doing something that is fully different and new, like Google was, or Facebook did, it's, it's going to get more room to breathe in this voting machine. People are going to give it more space. Like, oh, my God, I don't know what to do with that. That's so incredible. It's, it's, you, it it's hard. the opening of a new possibility, perhaps. It does. And it's hard to know where that TAM will reside and kind of, and, and all those types of things. That, that's not to say there's anything wrong with, you know, flat panel televisions replacing CRT televisions or something like that. That's great in its own way, too. But if you want a super high valuation, you sort of want jamais vu. You do not want deja vu. Uh, presque vu means, apparently, means I've seen this before, but this is a lot better than before. That's pretty good. What we've seen in like the SaaS world represented software, but it, it's somewhere in that presque vu de jamais vu space, if I had a spectrum. 
So that's, that's a really important thread, and that's our number one. I'm going to go through some of the others a little bit faster, but we'll go down through these. Um, second is the margin expansion dream. If a company has got 3% margins, but their business model says they're going to get to 35, um, well, you know, that's hard to disprove until their revenue's slow and they're creeping to a crawl and then they have to put up or shut up. So if you have that margin expansion dream, you know, somewhere, somewhere people are going to be talking about how they'll, oh my God, when, if you put a 30, you know, percent EBIT on this, oh my God, even if it gets to 20 and where are they now? Oh, they're at minus five now. Well, that gives you a lot of dreaming left. Uh, the revenue fade rate. If you think it's fr uh, far out and it's going to be slow and, and almost gentle, that gives you some time and some room. But if you see that revenue fade rate go from 45 to 30 down to, you know, 15, 15, all of a sudden, again, you're going to have to put up a shut up. You're going to have to like really bring this to a hold. The CEO is not going to be able to sell a dream anymore. And this is one of the ways I was wrong on, on Amazon. If we went back to like 2008, Brent, I figured maybe by 2012, 13, that that revenue fade, it, it was going to happen. Lo and behold, they keep layering on and keep layering on. It's, it's really incredible what they've done that they haven't faced that gravity. Well, that Another relates one. to the next one about neighboring uh, markets. Yeah, number four is, are there neighboring or extens extension markets of the, uh, of the current addressable one? Can you go, can you dream? And, and generally these seven are like, how much can you dream and for how long before, you know, someone's gonna throw cold water in your face and ask you like, well, how much money do you actually make? So if there's a vision of neighboring and extending markets, uh, that allows something to stay at a much higher ridiculous value for longer. All right, this next one is interesting because um, it's about the CEO selling the dream. So this one takes us squarely into almost like PR competitions sometimes. And it's really hard to go against a CEO that can effectively sell the yeah. dream. Yeah, uh, or even if they sell the dream on Twitter every day, like Elon Musk was doing, he was having like a, a, a battle against the shorts daily on Twitter. And, you know, you don't want to be short against that type of thing. There's easier ways to make money than to, you know, get blindsided calculably by a CEO that's going to get on Twitter and like uh, blow up your short story. But even more than that, forget that particular tactic. You have someone like Jeff Bezos out there selling the dream or Mark Benioff selling the dream or you, you fill in the blank. Um, they, they are inspiring. And sometimes they will almost through their selling, which isn't just to the investors. They're selling is wide. They're selling that dream sometimes to the customers and the clients. And Mark Benioff sold the idea of SaaS. Uh, without him, I really don't think SaaS would be where it is today. It had been tried before in the late 90s and it, it went nowhere. When he came around with his, you know, no more software license, you know, model and just selling that day to day to day, you know, it was really not a good idea to go against that too early. Hmm. It becomes, um, the, becomes the reality. The dream becomes the reality sometimes. Yeah. Um, the sixth one is, is a version of that, the degree of visibility on the dream. Is this something that's 20 years out or is this something that's kind of happening like inside the next year or two? If it's inside the next year or two, again, you probably don't want to be short, but people will, will hold out for that if they think it's just around the corner. Um, so the visibility on, and do you have signals that this is starting to kick up? Number seven, I think, is most important of all of these, and that is punctures. 
so often, and a puncture to me why I came up with that phrase is um, there's a difference between a, a stone kicking up against your car tire, hitting the hubcap and bouncing off, like bouncing off Teflon versus running over some sharp object and your tire actually deflating and being fully punctured. So when I think of punctures, it's what are the things coming up that could put punctures into all four tires of this car that it's just not moving? And I don't want to make that up as I go. I'd, I'd say if I had to guess 80 or 90% of the ideas that this short side will come up with against ridiculously valued stocks will be something that is more the, the first case. It's kind of a stone that bumps up the hubcap. It'll be something about, you know, the accounts receivable last quarter was up and what's in there, conspiracy theories and all that. Mm -hmm. I think a great puncture is something that you probably have thought of in advance, not some trivial aspect from the last quarter that you read too much into. Um, so a big puncture might be a regulatory change that, you know, comes in and that squashes a, a market. It's something very, it tends to be very big, but when you analyze it, you come to a conclusion that the car is not going to be able to move anymore. And that's a big, big, big distinction. When that puncture happens, it's you know, it, it could be free fall. Again, the, the dangerous part here is these are ridiculously valued stocks. And one of my mentors, Frank Houghton, taught me long, long, long time ago that when stocks get really extended, super extended, they go down far, far farther than you ever imagined. What that, but what that doesn't mean is that you have to own these ridiculously valued companies, these really amazing growth companies. You don't have to hold them in fear and terror day to day just because you can't do a DCF that justifies their price. So let's, let's zoom out and look at the whole market and how, you know, we can have an approach to that. And I actually want to go back, you know, a couple of decades. What can we learn from periods of time when the markets have been highly valued and when it has represented some sort of, um, well, gosh, I mean, it looked, the, the word puncture does come to mind. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, what can we learn from those periods? Um, I think the first thing that I start from is I don't recall the market ever going down significantly um, because of valuation similar to stocks that are ridiculously valued, the market can remain ridiculously valued for a long, 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 long time. In fact, uh, uh, Dan in our group was reminding me of some quotes from Barron's in 1999, in June 99, months matter here, June 99, a series of comments about just a radically overheated market. <clears throat> and from June 1999 to uh, mid-January, 2000, that same index, the NASDAQ, it doubled. Wow. That's all well and good if you're Warren Buffett or you have private money or something like that. But for professional money managers, that you really don't have a luxury of saying, well, you know, I was right. You know, the timing matters a lot. And it could have gone on a lot longer, Bryn, if there wasn't a similar puncture. When I think about markets dropping, so first and foremost, it's not going to drop because of valuation. 
we do need a trigger. We break down, um, or I try to break this down into three components. First is what I call conditions of possibility. This is a phrase that first was given to us by our friend uh, Zhao Chang Li, who's an anthropolo anthropology uh, professor at Stanford. The conditions of possibility. She was using it uh, with regard to the adoption of technology. We mm -hmm. poured it into different parts of life. So conditions of possibility. The second will be triggers. And the third is conditions of continuation. So I'll try and apply that in that period as one of our clients was asking us this, this week about this. So in that, just before the dot-com bust happened and the market's flying north, you had a lot of money managers who had very weak hands. They really didn't, really, really, really did not know what technology was. Yet the vast bulk of them had to invest in it as if they knew what they were doing. That created very weak holders. That's a condition of possibility for a big drop, as you might imagine. When things start to go awry, all of a sudden you get huge capitulation. A second was extremely immature companies. The dot-com bust, the, the dot-coms that were coming to market were ridiculously immature. A third component was general earnings estimates were, had, had crept way too high. They had moved up and moved up and moved up. As soon as there was a trigger that started to actually impact the long the markets of which the products were sold into all of the sudden that, that reflexivity the way george soros likes to say it, that reflexivity led to a very quick 18 month collapse in earnings estimates there are companies like nokia which was a very formidable company at that time hard to believe but it was at 35 percent revenue growth thinking they were being conservative i bet they wound up at something like 10. So that was it. So we think about those conditions of possibility, including the valuation. So it was all teed up, much like I think about World War One. I, I use it as an example, not that I'm a stu student, study, student of World War I that's, that's robust, but we always talk about, history books talk about the, the assassination of Archduke uh, Franz Ferdinand as the, the spark or the cause or the trigger. Mm -hmm. That was the trigger for World War One. The conditions, if, but if that's all that happened, you know, he just was assassinated without all the other things ready, those conditions of possibility, you would never have had World War I. Similar here, the dot-com bust was teed up because of all those factors and the valuation high. The trigger happened in late January of 2000 when the world woke up to understand that the cash flow burn was dramatic and all of these dot-com companies were going to have to raise money in the next four to five months. That woke people up like, oh my gosh. And just as trivial, in quotes, trivial as the seemingly trivial as the assassination of someone that most everyone in Europe had never heard of. There was a little Barron's article, a cover story about this cash burn. You can go back and see it, the cover with like this fire on it. And for whatever reason, it really, it clicked right at the right time, started scaring people to pieces. And within a couple of weeks, you had seen the top in the NASDAQ. Ultimately, it went down 80%. So Bryn, I kind of think about this, what are the conditions of possibility? Mm -hmm. Then I'm looking for a trigger and I'm gonna be wanting to be ready for a trigger, a trigger, a trigger, a trigger. And you're Something not including valuation. Never a include valuation. That, you know, great companies never go down because of the valuation. Something else happens. 
they might go down for a day or two or a week or something like that. But as far as puncturing stories of stocks or markets, you need these conditions of possibility. They seem to be reflective now. Um, the valuations do not seem to be as they are in 2000, 2001, although you see what's going on with SPACs right now that kind of says, well, wait, maybe it is just as extended. I don't know. Um, but we're waiting for a trigger. I don't, I'm not an expert. I don't follow these things day to day like many of our clients, but it doesn't seem that the earnings estimates are the thing or like, what is that trigger that's going to actually hit this? If it does, and maybe it's interest rates back up, that really certainly scares me or inflation kicks in. So maybe everyone's talking about those factors. Something that just wakes people up that says they should change their voting and change it quickly. Not because of some math or something like that, but they wake up with a fear where currently they don't have one. So that's a bit of a cliffhanger ending, <laughs> but working from that question of what might we wake up to realize is actually a puncture, we do have a framework. So we can go down the list. Are the conditions of possibility present? Is there a puncture? Is that puncture very concrete, like companies will run out of cash? Or is it very abstract, like everybody's printing money and the money has to go somewhere until they stop printing money and then it's game over. Are the conditions of continuation here? And that answer might help you assess the duration and severity of a shift. So I wanted to walk through that because it's just one example of where you can identify when you're swirling around and instead see if you can take that swirl and put it into these or other categories in order to get grounded. I hope this helped. Thanks for listening. <laughs>